This morning we have two passages for our scripture reading. Our first can be found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And we have two Bibles in the front of you. If you'd like to follow along, that's found on page 660. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was a husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one of them teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Our second passage is found in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Now if the ministry of death carved in the letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of the condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what was once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what, would, what is permanent have glory. Would you pray with me as we go to the word? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you, Father, that it not only saves the lost, but it saves the saved. And we ask that you would work in all of our hearts this morning. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, even a cursory reading of the Old Testament tells a person that the nation of Israel had a hard time, and they were usually in trouble, weren't they? They were almost always under God's judgment. In fact, in my study of the Old Testament, uh, I see only one generation in its entire history that was not under God's wrath and judgment, Joshua's generation. The Exodus generation, as you know, refused to go into the Promised Land, And we saw last year in our study from Hebrews that this entire generation, save Caleb and Joshua, this entire generation was lost. They died in the wilderness in their sin. And all the generations after Joshua were also unfaithful. In fact, on the eve of the Babylonian exile, 2 Kings 21, 14, and 15 said this, And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight, and listen to this phrase, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Now this morning, as we examine the last three chapters of the book of Joshua, at least four theological or applicational questions might help us to navigate our way. If you think of these questions as we're going through, it might help you kind of keep, keep track. The first is this. What distinguished 
Joshua's generation from all the others in the Old Testament. The second was how was that difference manifested? The third, how sure are you, how sure are we that we're members of Joshua's generation and not members of those other lost generations? And finally, if we are one of Joshua's tribe, how can we, how can I personally imitate their persevering faith? Joshua 22 to 24 will help us answer those questions. So let's jump in. Uh, jump in with me to Joshua 22, 1 to 6. We're just going to set the context and then move quickly. Joshua chapter 22, verses 1 to 6. At the time Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. That's a rarity right there. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you've been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, a servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, a servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents." Now, you may remember that way back in Numbers 32, Moses agreed. They asked for it, and Moses agreed to give Reuben, Gad, and then it turned out the half-tribe of Manasseh, the land that was east of the Jordan. It was outside the promised land. Gilead is a short term, shorthand term to refer to it. And then earlier in Joshua 13, Joshua apportioned this land east of the Jordan to those tribes. Well, now Joshua charges them with their covenant responsibilities to observe the law of Moses, which is to love the Lord, keep his commandments, clinging to him, serving him with all their hearts and with all their souls. And quickly after this charge, these tribes, which have already been lauded, these tribes show their faithful covenant colors. Let me just tell the story because of the, the length of our passage today. I want to move quickly and get to chapter 23. But let me just tell you the chapter 22 story. Attention arose over an enormous altar that they erected as they were heading across the Jordan. So they're still in the promised land. They're heading east. Before they crossed the Jordan, while they're still in the promised land, they erected this enormous altar. And the remaining ten tribes, nine and a half technically, but ten tribes, viewed this altar as an altar of sacrifice. Uh-oh. And they therefore saw it as the first step in apostasy. Because, of course, where was the altar? It was where the tent of meaning was. It was where God dwelled, which was in Shiloh. And so righteous Phineas, you may remember him from Numbers 25 fame, remember the spear through the couple, a little gruesome, but his zeal is commended nonetheless. 
righteous Phinehas, who was the son of Eleazar, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest. He leads a war delegation to confront the seeming apostate eastern tribes. This story is all told in Joshua 21, 22. But as it turns out, it's really nothing but a huge misunderstanding. It's really a communication problem. That's kind of funny, isn't it? It's got this war delegation, and they've just simply had a failure to communicate. The eastern tribes make their case. They're confronted. They make their case in verses 22 to 27. You don't need to look at that. And essentially, they say, no, wait a minute. This altar was not an altar for sacrifice, but it was an altar for witness. So that when your children and our children see it, because it was so big that it could be seen across the Jordan River, when they see it, they'll know we're all on the same team. They'll know that we're unified. They'll know that we are one before God in the covenant. Well, Phineas liked their explanation, and they decided to name the altar Witness, and thus the covenant was obeyed. And national unity was its fruit. You can see by the behavior here that something's going on that's different. They're not divisive. They're loving one another. They're loving their neighbors. They're listening, and they resolve the problem. And this sets the stage for the covenant renewal of the ten tribes. So we've got the two and a half, three tribes. They've left. They've been charged. Now we've got the remaining ten tribes. And open up to Joshua 23. I'm going to end up reading the whole chapter I think it breaks down essentially into two warnings. 1 to 13 is the first warning, 14 to 16, the second one. So let me read starting in verse 1. A long time afterward, this may be about 20 years, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was, was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be strong, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these, na of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. 
Like I said, chapter 23 could be viewed uh, as essentially warnings and further as a prelude to the formal covenant renewal in chapter 24. And you say, well, why the warnings? Kind of seems a little heavy-handed, maybe. They've been doing so well. They've been lauded in both chapters, haven't they? And they've evidenced the fruit of covenant keeping by that wonderful reconciliation that they had in chapter 22. Well, remember, Joshua had seen firsthand, he'd seen firsthand the apostasy of the Exodus generation, their parents. This is a generation which had seen the plagues, they'd seen the Red Sea parted, they'd seen the Egyptian army destroyed, they'd seen water from the rock, they'd seen the provision of manna, and yet, and yet, they would not trust the Lord. So now, some 20 years after chapter 22, and probably, although we're not sure, in Shiloh, where I said the tent of meeting and therefore the Lord's presence dwelt, Joshua delivers this warning, charging them to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, not to mix with the nations remaining among them or serve their gods, not even to mention the names of their gods. How about that? Don't even mention their names. But instead, to cling to the Lord as they have done thus far. Thus, given God's deliverance of his people to the promised land, they must be careful to love the Lord their God, lest the Lord ceases to drive out their remaining enemies and they perish from the land. And now we get sort of a rinse and repeat in verses 14 to 16. Let's pick it up there. Verse 14, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth. That's what he said in verse 1. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed, just as we heard last week from chapter 21. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from the good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. <clears throat> In the same faithful way that God had fulfilled all of his promises, the Lord says, In like fashion, I will destroy you from the land if you transgress this covenant. And the Lord's anger will be kindled against them if they're unfaithful, and they'll perish quickly from the promised land. Now, let's look at chapter 24, because this is the formal covenant renewal. You know, this is kind of helpful. The original covenant renewal was in Exodus 24, and the second covenant renewal is in Joshua 24. Those are two significant chapters, both 24, easy to remember. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. 
So God gathers the nation. And though the exact timing is uncertain, I mean, no doubt it's shortly after sort of that provisional covenant renewal in chapter 23, though the exact timing is uncertain, the location is sure. It's Shechem. It's in Shechem, pretty important city in Old Testament history and probably located 10 to 12 miles almost due north of Shiloh. Still, we're in, the, we're in the southern, starting to be in the middle of the area of, Jeru- of uh, Israel. So here's a question, why Shechem? Why did we move? Because presumably the tent of meeting is still in Shiloh. So why did we move from Shiloh to Shechem? What's so good about Shechem? It's kind of a funny word, isn't it? Shechem. Say that five times, you'll get all tongue twisted. Well... It was the first place that Abraham came to in the promised land when God made that covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12. In fact, in Genesis 12, 6, it says this. Abram, he was still Abram at that time, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak of Morah, right there under a tree. And then you may remember a few weeks back in Joshua 8, that Joshua went through an elaborate covenant renewal ceremony on Mount Ebal above Shechem. Do you remember that in chapter 8? I mean, he built an altar there. Remember that? He wrote the law of Moses on stones. That had to be tedious. He had the people stand on either side of the Ark of the Covenant in the valley between two mountains. And then he read every single word of the law of Moses to all the nation, men, women, and children. Don't ever complain about the length of Christ's memorial service. How long do you think that took? So what's Shechem's significance? Well, I think it's the place where the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants come together. And here we are at the end of Joshua about to embark on the formal renewal of the Mosaic Covenant, and of course, it's in Shechem. Yes. And as we shall see, this renewal is cast in the form of the standard treaties of the day, which usually included a preamble, verse 1 I just read, then sort of a a historical uh, uh, prologue, which is verses 2 to 13, Then we're given the covenantal terms or stipulations. I see that from verses 14 to 24. And finally, the formal covenant ratification, which includes a witness to the covenant. We'll see that in verses 25 to 28. So let me begin by reading the covenantal history, the historical prologue beginning in verse 2. And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt." And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out. 
Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and he made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. And I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. The theme is clear, isn't it? What's he saying? He's saying God was faithful. God is saying I was faithful to my covenant promises. I delivered your enemies into your hands. And I gave you the land that I promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this gives way to the terms or the stipulations of the covenant. You may remember, because it's very similar to what Moses did, the first thing Moses did before he gave the Ten Commandments was what? He reminded them that he had delivered them out of Egypt. You know, in light of that, do this. He just did that. He's reminded them of all the deliverances that he's given them and into the promised land. And now we're ready to look specifically at the stipulations of the covenant. Let me pick it up in verse 14, chapter 24. Now therefore, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought, who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out beyond, before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice 
we will obey. Now this is an interesting interaction, isn't it? There's a, a lot of parts of it, and uh, you know, I, I uh, along with my older brethren, you know, we pray that the Lord would allow us, as we get older, to not turn into grumpy old men. That's a concern for old guys. Some of you are young and very grumpy, but oftentimes it's a particular symptom of being older. Things just don't go quite right. You can't quite see. Things ache. Maybe Joshua, I mean, he's 110 years old. Maybe he's just a little grumpy here, you know, a little, little feisty, a little combative, contrary. I don't think that's what's going on at all. Let's walk through it. He issues the charge in verse 14. What is their covenant duty? Very, very clearly, to put away the gods that the Exodus generation served, their parents, and instead to serve the Lord. Now, there's the operative phrase, serve the Lord. The word serve occurs over and over and over again in this text. And of course, there's some options. They're not really options. It's kind of snarky options, you could say. They, they can choose what idol they want to serve. They could serve uh, the, the, the idols of the Amorites, uh, uh, or they can uh, serve uh, uh, some other kind of idols, or they can serve the Lord. That's really what he's saying. They can serve dumb idols, or they can serve the living God. Not much of a choice. But their choice is unequivocal, isn't it? Starting in verse 16, it starts with really a, a tone of incredulity. They say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord, as did their parents, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then it ends, their response ends with sort of that patented formula. For it is the Lord who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord. Not just you, Joshua. We too will serve the Lord. So Joshua responds. And I think his response actually helps clarify not only the entire history of Israel, but particularly the distinction between the old and new covenants, which means that he's distinguishing the nature of true conversion, of true faith. Joshua boldly declares, starting in verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Now, what on earth does that mean? What do these guys have to do? What do they have to say to assure him that that's what they're planning to do? Well, I don't think he's confused. I think that that statement in verse 19 is interpreted in the rest of verse 19 and in verse 20. And I think what Joshua is saying is this. He's warning them that unless they continue in covenant faithfulness, unless they continue, we would say, to walk by faith, as Father Abraham walked by faith, and as they had manifested thus far, and particularly with that altar incident in chapter 22, unless they continue to do that, God will do them harm. He will consume them. It's a warning concerning the consequences of apostasy. To put it theologically, and more positively, Joshua is urging them to be diligent to enter the rest 
of the new covenant. The rest that comes through the new covenant. For the old covenant, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, is a ministry of death. There's no rest. Joshua is warning them of the consequences of failing to enter that rest. Do you hear the Hebrews language there? The Hebrews 4 language? He's warning them of the consequences of failing to enter that rest, lest they die in their sins, as did the Exodus generation, and as will future generations, if they don't continue. But the people are undeterred, aren't they, in verse 21. No, they say, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua reissues the charge. He says, put away the foreign gods and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Put away those foreign gods, incline your heart to the God of Israel. And he undergirds his charge by pointing out that by their promise, by their repeated promises, they have become witnesses against themselves. And they affirm that, yes, we are witnesses against ourselves. This is what we've said. Their profession remains unwavering in verse 24. They say, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And now at this point, it's time to sign the document, to ratify the treaty, to seal the covenant between God and his people. Let me pick it up in verse 25 to the end of the book. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up under a terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. And therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And after these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. And it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So Joshua makes, renews the covenant with the people of Israel. He writes down all of the covenantal terms, their stipulations, that is, the book of the law. And he places a large stone under a terebinth tree, form of pistachios, pesto can be made from that, also turpentine. Seems like a conflict, doesn't it? He, he places a large stone under a terebinth tree as a witness. The stone has heard all the words of the covenant spoken by Joshua and the people, so to speak. 
and therefore it symbolizes, it symbolizes the agreement. It stands as a witness against them should they transgress the covenant. And then verse 28 completes the covenant renewal ceremony and their deliverance from Egypt, starting in verse 28. And I think that completion is certified by two things. First, by Joshua sending the people away. Just like he did with the eastern tribes, he now sends those who are west of the Jordan River away to their inheritances, which he had apportioned and which had been promised to Abraham. And then second, through the death and burial of what I've termed the covenant pioneers, starting with Joshua, who, like Joseph, died at the age of 110. Some suggest that there's sort of a perfection in that age. I wasn't able to really track that down. Uh, but it is, if you're going to die at a certain age, it's nice to die the same age that Joseph died because he's highly revered. And verse 31 certifies that Joshua's generation remained faithful to the covenant. Joshua's generation was faithful. Judges 2 will repeat that same assertion. But notice it also included Joseph. Now, why Joseph? Well, Joseph's pretty central to the nation's sojourn in Egypt. Remember, he was a man of great faith. He protected them during the famine. And then as he was about to die, he insisted that his bones be exhumed and reburied in the promised land, demonstrating his faith. Hebrews 11 notes that. And note again Shechem, the centrality of Shechem. It was a piece of land that Jacob had purchased way back, and they bury him in Shechem. And I think that again leaks the Mosaic covenant with the one made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then finally it includes Eleazar, who was the son of Aaron. Remember Aaron, like Moses, was not allowed to go into the promised land. I don't think that means they were lost, but it does mean that, that it kind of wasn't complete. And now Eleazar is in the promised land. Things are settled, and now he dies. So Joshua has renewed the covenant with all 12 tribes, the two and a half east of the promised land, the nine and a half in the promised land. He summoned his generation to covenant faithfulness, having circumcised them earlier and charged them to keep the terms of the covenant laid out in the book of the law of Moses. And they have responded in faith. If you will, they've demonstrated that they have circumcised their hearts. They've said, we will serve the Lord and obey his voice. And they had a faith that didn't apostatize. It didn't turn away to serve other gods. It was a faith that persevered just like Father Abraham and similar to the incident in Genesis 22. But Joshua is not just summoning his generation, is he? Covenant loyalty, faithfulness is actually critical to every single person in this auditorium this morning. It's critical to men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So Joshua is summoning, summoning all of us to covenant fidelity, to covenant loyalty, to covenant faithfulness. Or shall we say he's summoning us to the new covenant. And I think he's doing that in at least three ways. First, I think he's summoning us by 
urging us to see our slavery in Adam to sin and to death. He's summoning us to see our inability to please God on our own, even when we desire to do, to do so. This points to humanity's enslavement to sin, which makes the old covenant dependent on our ability to keep the law. And that means we're in trouble. Now, Jerry read the new covenant terms. I'd like to reread that, and I'd like to ask you to turn to that, if you would. Jeremiah chapter 31. And we'll pick it up in 31. That's another easy one to remember. 31, 31. Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, which I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, I want you to remember that the Exodus generation, that lost generation, made the exact same promises that Joshua's generation made. You can look it up for yourself in Exodus 19 and Exodus 24. That lost generation said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. The exact same words. So we have to come to terms with this reality. A mere willingness and desire to obey the law is not what distinguished the Exodus generation from Joshua's generation. Both promised to obey. We might say both joyfully concurred with the law of God in the inner man. But the old covenant did not provide what it demanded. Though they were released from the bondage of Egypt, that Exodus generation, that generation that pledged to obey, they were not released from the bondage of sin. Theirs were hearts of stone. By contrast, the hearts of Joshua's generation were circumcised, and thus, just like Father Abraham, theirs was a new covenant. It was a spirit-empowered faith enabling them to walk in God's statutes and fulfill, not perfectly, fulfill God's law. They were not mere hearers like their parents, but they were doers of the law, characteristically, not perfectly. Dear ones, if we're to heed Joshua's summons, we must begin by accepting that our spiritual birthplace was Egypt. And we need a greater than Moses to set us free. Accordingly, and secondly, we must see that all of our attempts to be good people, to seek to please God by our own performance, is futile and provides no rest from the guilt and shame of our repeated failures. Joshua did not give them true rest. It says that in Hebrews chapter 4. 
No, only Jesus Christ can enable us to rest from our attempts to please God by our works through his work, his death, burial, and resurrection. He finished the work that we needed to be done to please God when he died on the cross for our sins and was raised on the third day. And so, as restless slaves to sin, as lost sinners desperate for deliverance, we're really desperate for a new covenant, for a freedom that works. On the eve of the cross, remember what Jesus said? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's what, he, that's what he was doing. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's right. Jesus Christ, listen to this. Jesus Christ fulfills the Mosaic covenant and finally is the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant thus freeing all who will but trust in him to enter into all of its benefits as co-heirs. If you will, Jesus Christ is our Shechem. He's the place where everything is fulfilled. The old covenant was without power. The law was written on tablets of stone and could only condemn us. It could only condemn us to eternal death. But the new covenant brings freedom and power with the law written on new circumcised hearts by the Spirit, enabling us to walk in newness of life. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That should just usher in a praise service right now, shouldn't it? If we really got a hold of it. And this walk, this new covenant... This Joshua generation, Father Abraham faith, is never a temporary season in one's life. It always perseveres to the end, doesn't it? Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. If you continue, faith always Perseveres. That's what Joshua was charging them to do, to persevere. It's not perfect, but it is triumphant. It's victorious. It works. It remains on the highway of holiness, and it increasingly fulfills the law to love God and to love our neighbor, just as Joshua's generation did until he calls us home through the resurrection of our bodies. So two questions in closing. First, are you sure? Listen to me, dear one. Are you sure you're in Joshua's generation? Are you a member of that generation? You know, it doesn't matter if you say to yourself, I must, I must be because I like church, I go to church. And I sincerely desire to obey God. No, that doesn't matter. It's not enough. I'm not talking about a works theology. We're talking about a salvation that works. The true saint is not a mere hearer, but a doer. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. We have an intercessor who always lives to make intercession for us because we sin. But he's a doer, characteristically, of God's law. 
And so I'm asking you, dear professing Christian, is that true of you? Is obedience your calling card? Is love for others what marks you? Is forgiveness typical of your behavior? Is purity what you're doing most of the time? I know these are hard questions, but they must be answered. You don't want to be like the Exodus generation or those that came after Joshua, religious but lost. Jesus says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yes, rest from your works. Rest because of his work. Come, unbelieving one. Come, you who have professed Christ spuriously. Because if the Son shall set you free... You shall be free indeed. Yes. And second, for those that are confident that they know Christ, how can we persevere in our faith? How can we heed Joshua's warning? How can we as a church continue to serve the Lord? I mean, given that we've already experienced Deliverance from sin's penalty and deliverance from sin's power. How can we continue to overcome sin's presence? You know, when I think of sin's presence, I can't think of a better illustration than one of my kid's dogs who happens to live next to me. I'm the dog's grandparent. We have a very close relationship, me and Ginger. And Ginger found a dead skunk in, in the yard, thankfully in their yard, <laughs> and did what stupid dogs do, and especially rubbed its head, its face, I don't even want to go into any more detail, all over that dead skunk. And this dog, which was the pride and joy of Buddy and Hannah, is now literally in the doghouse. And that, that smell has continued for weeks. I'm not talking days, weeks. I regularly smell her. And I can still smell that skunk. It's probably more than a month now. Brothers and sisters, that's how sin is with us. We rubbed our face in it for however long we were outside of Christ. And even if you came to Christ when you were young, your face was rubbed in it by virtue of your solidarity with Adam. And even though God has delivered us from sin's penalty, from sin's power, hallelujah, praise the Lord, glory be to God, that stench of sin lingers, doesn't it? So how can we continue to make progress and be cleansed experientially, mortifying the deeds of the flesh. The women's conference has it right, by fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's what Hebrews 12 says. 
we endure, we run the race of, the, of endurance, how? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, by continually beholding God's Son, by cultivating the beatific vision. So we're seeing Him, we're beholding Him, we're being transformed, we become what we behold, and we do that through His Word. We do that through His Word. We want to see Jesus. We want to fix the eyes of our hearts on Jesus. We want to long for conformity to his character and for the eternal presence of our heavenly bridegroom, do we not? So let us diligently seek him in his word. Let us groan desperately for his appearing. And as we do, God promises to transform us into his beautiful and holy image, protecting us from apostasy until Christ returns and awards us the crown of righteousness for our persevering faith. Yes, until victory wears the crown, and it will. It will. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Joshua. We look forward to the wrap-up next week with Pastor Mitch. We thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, God, continue to work in our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.